the, the uh, reading of our scripture today. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, you can just follow along on the screen. So our scripture verse today is Philippians 4, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat your dear, and I entreat Syntice to agree in the Lord. I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is the word of God. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Father, we come boldly here today, Father, to just hear from you, Lord. So we pray that your word would be uh, preached with uh, passion and conviction from this pulpit, Lord. We pray that you would just um, be with Pastor Kyle, as he brings forth your word, and that, Father, you would open our hearts, that, your, that the words that come from this pulpit would not fall short in our own lives today, Father, but they, we would take them in and we would ponder upon, upon them. So continue to bless us as we move forward in our worship to you today in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you. You may be seated. It's so good to be here this morning with you all. Um, missed you all last week. I was in Kentucky. Um, I got to visit the Corvette Museum, which was a lot of fun, um, and um, there was a big, giant, I don't know if you guys have seen this on the news, I think it was a few years ago, but there was a big, giant sinkhole that swallowed up like 20 antique Corvettes, and they had this big display and everything, it was really interesting to see that, but we got to see the church um, out there, and meet. Uh, I got to meet a lot of the people, and of course I missed you all, and um, just uh, missed being with you here on the Lord's Day. And that's why we're here this morning. We're here to sing about the promises of God. We're here to preach about the promises of God. We are here to fellowship around the promises of God. We even symbolize the promise of God in our taking communion together. So isn't it wonderful to be here? And just thanks again to David and Naomi for being here with us and leading us in worship. They're just good friends. There you go. <clears throat> and I hope everyone's nice and comfy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, there was a, a crew that was working hard last week to... Um, unload all of these chairs off a truck, so thank you guys for chipping in. And actually, um, the church that David and Naomi are from helped buy these chairs, so give them another round of applause. <laughs> so we can send them back um, with thanks to uh, Anthony and to the crew there and whatnot. Um, but, but so good to be here on the Lord's Day. We get to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that Christ is coming back for us. Amen. Um, an amazing passage of scripture that we're approaching. Um, it seems um, this stellar record of the Philippian church as we go through this short letter in the New Testament um, is uh, suddenly kind of interrupted by a problem. As wonderful as this church was, they still had problems. Um, and that's what we approach today. We, we approach a subject on conflict in the church and even Christian, to say it more positively, Christian friendship. Um, a marvelous little book called The Meaning of Marriage. It's by Tim Keller. I don't know if you ever have read this. If you're married, it's worth reading. If you're thinking about getting married, it's worth reading. It's a beautiful book. He says this, though, about friendship. He says that it's a deep oneness that develops as two people speaking the truth and love to each other journey together to the same horizon. Spiritual friendship is the greatest journey of all because the horizon is so high and so far, yet sure, 
It is nothing less than the day of Jesus Christ. And what we will be like when we finally see him face to face. What then is friendship for? It is for helping each other to become our future glory selves, the new creations that God will eventually make us. Isn't that a beautiful definition of friendship? And by the way, he speaks of this in the context of Christian marriage and how in Christian marriage, this is the, this is the point of the other, leading each other to our future glory selves. He's also known for saying this, a true friend always lets you in and never lets you down. There are two features of Christian friendship and Christian harmony, and they are transparency and constancy. That's what he means by they always let you in, transparency. They never let you down, constancy. He, and he bases this, by the way, on John chapter 15, where Jesus said, My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for a friend, constancy. See? You are my friends if you do what I command. We kind of trip over that part, so you know, let's skip it. I no longer call you servants because... Um, because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I call you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. There's the transparency. Constancy, transparency. So Jesus demonstrated the constancy of friendship, the transparency of friendship, and that he laid down his life, and he also, everything that the father gave to him, he gave to us. Now, I, I sort of had trouble when I first heard this definition from Keller where he said, a friend never lets you down. I'm like, whoa, that's bogus. I, I let my friends down all the time. But here's what he means. We fail our friends. Of course we fail our friends. He's not saying that we don't fail each other. We, we let each other down in that sense. But a friendship that's constant is eager to repent. But that's what makes it constant. It's a, it's, a, it's a way in which we demonstrate to the other person that your, the friendship is more important than my ego because I failed you, you see? So it's eager to repent. And likewise, it's eager to forgive when offended. That's a constant friendship. That's a healthy friendship. It's not that you don't fail each other, but when you do, you admit it promptly and it's quickly forgiven by the other. So there's a constancy but if our hard hearts prevent us from admitting a fault, we're not being a friend anymore, are we? <laughs> and likewise, if the injury prevents us from forgiving the other and reconciling, the friendship just erodes and it dies. So in friendship, in Christian friendships, there is a transparency. We let each other in. Everything that I learned from my Father I have made known to you. There's no hiding things with Jesus. Now, we might imagine a secular friendship like this, right? A friendship that demonstrates a sort of constancy and transparency. Um, all friendship requires some kind of common interest. And I, I think I could easily d dis demonstrate this when I was a child. You know, if you liked anything that I liked, you were my instant friend. You like Batman? I like Batman. We're friends. You like skateboards? So do I. We're best friends. Right? That's, that's kind of like you have something in common with another person and you just kind of hit it off and you become friends. There's a commonality. I don't want to oversimplify friendship, but it does kind of require that in a sense. 
So a secular friendship can develop around like common interests of family, certain virtues or goals in life, the end being two people kind of growing and developing in their affection for each other as they kind of head towards realizing their goals and dreams and aspirations in life. But here is why Christian friendship is so unique. The constancy and the transparency in Christian friendship centers around a glorious shared vision of what we will be in Christ. There is a unifying principle of our lives, a vision for our lives as Christians, and we see our friendships as we're tools in their lives to help them realize that in their life. So we're constantly aiming to move each other along to what we will be in Christ. Now, if you're kind of new to the faith this morning and don't really know what it is that I'm talking about, I don't know what I'm talking about either, so you're in good company. No, I'm just kidding. If you're a little confused right now, try to understand that what I'm taught, the Christian goal is to be like our maker, our God, our creator, to be like him, to be formed into his image. That means that we have to have our sins forgiven because we've offended a holy God, and that is done for us in Jesus Christ and by grace through faith. And now we're set on a course to heaven to be like him as citizens of heaven. Where in this life we fail and we wax and wane in our faith. We fall, we get up. It's kind of a process in the Christian life. But we're becoming more and more like what we will be then. And that is like God perfectly holy and righteous and just and good. So that's what I mean, by the way, when, when Christian, in Christian friendships, we're moving each other along to that end. Being so open with the other that nothing is hidden that might prevent that end in our lives. If Jesus saved us to perfect us, <clears throat> to make him just like he is perfectly when he, re- to make us, excuse me, just like he is perfectly when he returns, altogether holy, righteous, just, good, and loving, then a true Christian friend is a person committed to you to become a little bit more like your future glory self. See? I love this powerful illustration that I've heard from time to time, and I kind of got a picture of it up there. I went to Hawaii on my, on my honeymoon with my wife um, eight years ago. I think we got married about that. And um, what a lovely time we had. And we went to this, we, we opened up this, um, this kind of like tour guide manual. And we found that, uh, we went to um, Kauai, is that what it's called? Huh? Kauai? Yeah, so we opened up this tour guide. In the north part, the south part of the island, there was supposed to be like this beautiful, picturesque mountain that you could go and see, and it's just beautiful. Overhangs like these cliffs on the ocean. It's just gorgeous. So we, we make the hike up there. We drive up the mountain. We didn't hike it, but we drive up the mountain, and we're, we finally arrive at this kind of like overlook where you're supposed to be able to take pictures and just enjoy the sight. And all we saw was this blanket of clouds. We could see nothing at all. You gotta, it, was, it was kind of a bummer because we came there. We didn't come there to see clouds. We have clouds here, <laughs> right? So... We're waiting and waiting and waiting, and then all of a sudden, just for a minute, remember this? Just for a minute, the clouds just kind of separated, and we saw how beautiful all those mountains were, and we just kind of took it in, and then a minute later, they kind of covered back up. And that's sort of like what it's like to be a Christian. You see, friends, when you become a Christian, God is leading you to your future glory self, that glorious mountain 
who you are in Christ, without failure, without sin, fully faithful, right? But in life, we have a flesh still. Those, mat, those, those clouds kind of cover over us. But every now and then, we see each other in life as Christians, and we get a peek into what we're going to be like in heaven. And the clouds lift, and we see that glory self in each other. And friend, that's what a friend does. A friend sees that in you, even when you're your ugliest. Even when I'm ugly Kyle to, to my beautiful wife. My wife still has the capacity to see, in spite of the sin that remains in my life, she sees that mountain that I'm supposed to be and that I'm headed toward being. And that's what a friend does. A friend faithfully, patiently leads the other to become that fullness of Christ. Even when we fail each other, and that's, I think, when it's the hardest. So this is what it's like to be a Christian. We kind of wish, don't we, that we were always the mountain, that clouds didn't come in and block the view. But that's just life, isn't it? (laughs) But that's why God has called us together as a local church. Did you know that? A Christian friend, a Christian church, is a community of people committed to each other to present to each other that glory self, to work it out together. That's why God has called us together. But but many of us, I think, I fear, still kind of remain hidden, even at church. We still kind of lack friendships like this, where we're open, where we're transparent, and we're constant, and we're, we're both headed towards that same glory end. See? We need to spur each other on. We, you can't let me hide. I know I'm the pastor, but I can still hide. You know that? You can't let me hide. We weren't meant to hide. We were, we were meant to be friends to each other. I call you friends, Jesus said. We were meant to be friends. We weren't, we weren't meant just to kind of show up, and that's about it. We were meant to know each other, to, to lead each other to that glorious end. We have in our text, however a real-life example of a Christian friendship eroding over some unnamed conflict. And I want to note some principles on spiritual union and its negative counterpart, and that's namely division. Division gets in the way of a capacity to be friends to each other, Christian friends, to lead each other on to Christ-likeness. So I want to notice some of the principles that I think are pretty clear in this passage. And they are simply, number one, division in Christian friendships is antithetical to the gospel. I'm going to unpack these as we go along. Number two, division undermines the nature of the church. And number three, division leaves the Christian open to various attacks. So let's kind of take a look at these in more detail. You heard about these two names, these two women, that it's likely you can't pronounce their name. And neither can I, and Bill couldn't either. <laughs> I'm going to try to do better than him. But you know what? I don't even know how they're pronounced. So let's just pretend that I'm right. Euodia and Syntyche are, are only here mentioned in the Bible. Isn't that kind of a bummer? <laughs> Address these ladies because they're fighting. Okay? They're only here mentioned in the Bible. Paul calls them to settle a disagreement which he mentions nothing about. He doesn't even say whose fault it was. He doesn't say who started it, right? Um, He doesn't say what what the particular issue is. He just calls on them to resolve a conflict. So he calls them to settle a disagreement, which he mentions nothing about. It's as if the matter for which 
that he's addressing, the conflict, is almost irrelevant to him. It's almost as if it doesn't even matter why you're fighting. You need to work this out. They clearly had not worked it out, because if they had, why would Paul mention anything about it? And it also seems clear that the church knows about this. You see, this is a public letter, and it's, it's being read publicly. So it's pretty clear that the church knows about these feuding ladies, right? And it's possible, too, if the church knows about it, that they've started kind of taking sides as well. So there's a division that's starting in the church that's quite likely. But all these, Paul calls brethren. He addresses them as brethren. He doesn't say, hey, fools, <laughs> stop fighting. He says, brothers. Brethren, brothers and sisters, some of your translations might say. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Do you see the kind of affection he's pouring over them? Brothers and sisters, he longs for them. He loves them. They're his joy. They're his crown. Friends, it's scandalous to the gospel to have any other attitude toward each other than that. It's scandalous to the... Why is it scandalous to the gospel? Because the gospel makes us brethren. And let's uh, talk a little bit about what I mean by that. The, the gospel calls once enemies of God to friendship with God as one family unit. See, in other words, I'm not the only son in God's family. Whoever has called on the name of the Lord will be saved. That means if you've called on the name of the Lord... You're my brother, you're my sister. You're my brother, you're my sister. That means that I have an intimate bond, bond and friendship with Jesus, but it also means that you're my brother. I have an intimate bond and friendship with you in Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 says that the lost were once alienated from Jesus, separated from his promise. And friend, if you don't know Jesus Christ this morning, your sin alienates you from God's affection. And your sin needs to be forgiven at the cross. Your presence here doesn't forgive you of that. Your helping people um, with their grocery money doesn't, doesn't um, forgive you of that. Jesus Christ's death and resurrection forgives you of that. But once you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you're made part of a larger family that's tied together by the blood of Jesus himself. We are joint heirs with Christ, the Bible says. Joint heirs with Christ. Not just Kyle heir, Kyle's an heir. Joint together, we inherit everything that Jesus deserves. Together. So at the cross, we have one father. We have one family. We have one savior. We have one comforter, one spirit. That's why I can go to Mexico or Spain or Japan and say, brother, to someone that knows Jesus Christ. And if any of you have experienced any amount of maturity in Christ and growth in Christ, you'll know that you can meet someone who's half a world away that is nothing like you, but you have an instant affection for this person because of their faith in Jesus. How many people have ever experienced that before? That happens because of the intimate union, the mystical union that the Holy Spirit provides us as we demonstrate faith in Jesus. You see why division is antithetical to the gospel. The gospel created us to be one, not to be divided. So the gospel should birth in us 
a tender affection for God's people, as Dr. Mottier noted in his marvelous commentary. Does Christ not love each one of us? Does Christ not long for you? See, this is the language of Paul. How I loved you, how I longed for you. But does Christ not love us like this? Does Christ not long for us like this? And there is a scandal about division, about unresolved conflict that we refuse to work out with brothers and sisters in Christ. There is equally a scandal, by the way, in just kind of having a lukewarm, distant relationship with people who we are mystically united to in Christ. In other words, we don't really have too many deep friendships, a constant and transparent friendship in Christ. We kind of keep people a little bit away from us because people are annoying. They start to get to know me, and I don't want them to see this part or that part of me. So we're not being transparent. And, and consequently, we have no friendships, deep spiritual Christian friendships, that can move us along to our glory self. So there's a scandal about these things. When we insult each other without apology, when we refuse to forgive each other, when we are so easily offended or we so easily offend, there's a scandal about this. It is antithetical to the gospel. How we can so easily forget those who Christ died to never forget. The church he calls his beloved, his dear friends. So to be like Christ, which is the goal of our salvation, is to share in that grand affection for each other. To not stand aloof. Isn't it great when someone longs for you? Have you ever had someone in life long for you? They love you like that passionately? Imagine... Imagine having a church like that, that loves you like that, that doesn't forget you, that longs for you, that, love, that, won't, that, that we won't let you hide because we care about you. Now just kind of amplify that a bit and consider that's how God feels about you. That's what the gospel's for. Enemies reconciled to the knowledge of Christ. How great. The gospel is aimed at the day of Christ. We kind of see this a little bit here. Paul's words, he says, you are my joy and you are my crown. Now you might miss this. There are theological implications to this language. Okay, What did Jesus say? Do not rejoice that, you are su- that the demons are subject to you. You remember this story in the Gospels where, where Jesus gives his disciples, his apostles, his healing power, and he says, go out, heal the sick, and cast out demons. They go out and they do this, and they come back and they're flipping out excited. And who wouldn't be, right? Jesus, you should have seen it. There was this demon, and they left, and they were all excited. And he, almost, he stops them, and he, and he almost rebukes them. And what does he tell them? He says, do not rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. In other words, rejoice that the day of Christ is coming, and when it comes, you will not find a judge, but a friend. Your sins are forgiven. You see, that is the Christian's hope. And that event is the foundation of Christian joy. 
in the foundation of all of our reward, the crown. You see, my joy, my crown. What he's saying here is, when we are presented to Christ when he comes as the bride, this 